What did they say? Third time's a charm? More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachet, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. In today's episode, we're joined by the amazing James Altucher. Not only has James had a storied career as a hedge fund manager, entrepreneur who's co-founded more than 20 companies, author, venture capitalist, and podcaster, he's also one of the nicest people in the industry around. In this wide-ranging conversation, we cover everything from how James got a start as a software developer through his days as selling websites to companies like HBO, and more recently, his love for stand-up comedy. Enjoy it. James. Thank you so much, first of all, for being one of the first guests. Sasha, I am honored that you asked. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on. And I actually wanted to start the first question with by saying thank you. I, I don't know how long it's been. I think you wrote that post about how to get lucky in four steps seven or eight years ago. And that's when I had first moved to the San Francisco and I was going through a hard period and it helped me. So I wanted to start by just learning. I think it's something that people should learn about, the daily practice. But instead of just the steps, I would love to learn how, what's the last time you used it in that context? Yesterday. I do it every single day. It's a daily practice. And I find when I don't do it, let's say I, I, there's, if I miss a day, I'll feel bad. You know, like I, I'll realize I missed something and I didn't, I didn't do it. Like it'll, it'll feel like I missed out on a chance to, to make myself a better person. But I don't do it consistently, like for a month or two my life will actually be significantly worse off. Like, I'm not the sort of person who wakes up every day filled with exciting energy and optimism and and so on. Although I'm an optimistic person, I really need to do something like this, what I call the daily practice, to what I say, reach my potential. That's kind of a cliche, but to be the best that I can be and not kind of fall to pieces. And I think it's very easy to fall to pieces. And, and I'm, I'm so glad you picked up on this post because I do feel out of the 3,000 posts I've written in the past just 10 years, I've been writing for 20 years professionally, but just in the past 10 years, these, these 3,000 posts, give or take, that is the most important one. That is the one that I really looked back on my life, both past and, and future, and that's the one that's had the most impact for me, both the, the practice and that article itself. So thank you for pointing that that one out even it was written like in 2010 or 2011 mm-hmm. so so you mentioned like when you don't do it you fall to pieces i'm curious like in the last few years what like did that happen and what did that look like and then what did you do and and feel free to share what the practices for, for people who are listening today they know what that is too sure so you know as you know uh and maybe some of your listeners know since the mid 90s i've been an entrepreneur or an investor or something chaotic and stupid that makes life very, very volatile. 
So as you know, being an entrepreneur is not an, an easy path. Being an investor is not an easy path. Being a, a writer or an artist is not an easy path. Not that any path is easy, I should mention, but sometimes when you're an entrepreneur, like so many things happen wrong. And life is hard enough as it is. Like relationships are hard. Family is hard. Taking care of yourself is hard. You know, health, being creative just in general in life is, is hard. Being low stress, being peaceful with, with where you are in life is hard. But then when you throw on top entrepreneurship where you're responsible for customers, investors, employees, and all the other hundred nuances of being an entrepreneur or an artist or whatever, it's so difficult and stressful. And when too many things go wrong at the same time, it's almost impossible for me, and I don't know about other people, but for me to really deal with it. Like if, if 10 things are going wrong at the same time, that's like a normal thing for entrepreneurs. It, not normal, it might happen like once every few months, but it'll happen where everything that can go wrong will. And can you give an example of when that happened, let's say like in the last year or? Yeah, you know, in the last, I mean, and again, by the way, that's a good question because no matter where you are in life, you could have sold 50 businesses. You're going to have one of those points. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, you know, they all have these, you know, Jeff Bezos recently had a, an all-in-one issue that was very public. But for me, um, you know, in this past year, you know, I've had times where I both run businesses, help other businesses run, make investments, write books, write articles. And there are times, or, and I, I also am working on various TV shows. There was a, a time when I was confused about some relationships I had, some business relationships, some friendships, and some family relationships all at the same time. Some of my investments seemed to be going down. I didn't understand why. I felt blocked writing. I felt blocked in other areas where I try to be artistic. And just, just all those things simultaneously, I started to feel like, on the precipice of depression, where once you're depressed, it doesn't matter what events took you there, you're over the cliff. So it doesn't matter who pushed you, you're flying towards the ground. And it's hard to, to get out of that once you've been pushed a little too far. And I kind of felt on the edge of that. Like I, sleep is very important to me. I felt like I wasn't sleeping as well. And so everything was, and I was getting sick, which is a sign of stress. Like I was getting a cold. For me, that's always been a sign of too much stress. And so I realized, okay, I've been maybe too busy. I wasn't taking care of myself. And I looked and I wasn't really accurately doing this daily practice the way I would like. And starting to do that really, just even starting really helped me a lot. Like I started writing an article a day again, no matter what. I started writing ideas down. So, so you know, the daily practice is basically are you taking care of yourself in tiny, tiny ways? Like, are you just attempting just to do 1% more for physical health, emotional health, creative health, and what I call spiritual health, which doesn't mean praying or meditating, although it could. It just means a deeper understanding of what things can I control and what things I can't control. Like, I'll give you an example. I had a weird sort of, I'll call it a PTSD. Ever since the very first time I went, dead broke, not counting my college years. The very first time I went dead broke was 19 years ago, 18 years ago. And ever since then, I can't look at like my bank account. <laughs> like if I'm taking out money and I'm at the bank, I specifically put my hand up so I can't see what's in my bank account. Like I'm so terrified 
to see it. It's like, it's like a reminder of then. And I decided, you know what? I got to get over that. So I started looking at it and I realized for the past year, and look, I manage my life pretty well. I manage businesses. I, I make deadlines. I write, I, I'm a very responsible person. But this one thing, I realized someone I had been involved with a long time ago was stealing from me every single month and had been doing that for a year and a half, which shows you how little I look at my bank account. And I realized, man, that's really bad. I, I thought more highly of this person. And I emailed and said, have you been stealing from me every month? And she said, well, I wouldn't call it stealing, but yeah, I've been taking. And I'm like, well, are you going to pay it back? And she said, no. And you know what? There's nothing I can do. There was no, there's so many, what am I going to do? Sue or report it to the police and not, and then nothing happens? Like, because there was no, who knows? You know, stealing has to be a little bit more obvious. There's a, there's a bar even for, for stealing. And so the reality was, ethically, she was doing something wrong. But legally, I couldn't prove anything that I hadn't agreed to this since, you know, whatever. But uh, I'm going too much into the details of this. But what I had to do for myself as part of this daily practice was to simply say, look, A, I have to take extreme ownership to quote Jocko Willing's book, Extreme Ownership. Uh, and he's a good friend of mine. I had to take extreme ownership of the situation. I'm the one who didn't look at my bank account for a year and a half. Certainly part of the blame belongs to me here. Second, there's nothing I can do. So I can't even afford to be angry about it. Like anger, anger will kill you. I've seen people literally die from anger. And so I can't even be angry about it. So that's it. I just had to, the daily practice for me on the spiritual side that day was to say, okay, this happened. I got to learn what I can from it. I got to take ownership. I'm proud of myself for taking ownership of it. I can't control it. I can't even get angry at this person because it's pointless. It's like, what's the cliche about anger? It's like, um, I don't know, loading a gun, but then shooting yourself with it. I don't know. That's maybe not the cliche, but, um, and so I've done that and then you move forward and, and now I've learned and I'm better for it. I would have been worse for it if I decided to get angry or do something crazy. So that's like one small example of the spiritual side of the practice for me on the creative side. I've got to do something creative every day. I used to mean I had to write every day and write 10 ideas a day. Now it's, I still write 10 ideas a day but I have to do any creative thing. Could be a podcast, could be an article, could be performing on a stage somewhere. Emotional side, I've got five kids. How am I doing with them? How am I doing with my wife? How am I doing with my friends? In general, am I improving my relationships and, and distancing myself from toxic relationships? And physically, am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? Am I exercising? Not like lifting 600 pounds, but just doing something. That's the practice. And, and can I describe at a deeper level? Because I like the deeper stuff a little bit. No, I think that was great. And I think one, one of the things that was really important in what you said about your experience with that person was this idea of just sort of being one compassionate to yourself and forgiving yourself for mistakes, right? Because a lot of us sort of like aim for this perfection. Now, I'm actually curious about this because I think a lot of podcasts, including yours, is, is about interviewing peak performers, right? And I'm curious, like, what sort of motivates you to do that or why interview peak performers or why be fascinated with that? Where does that come well, from? Well, like you, Sachet, I like to get good at things mm -hmm. that I'm passionate about. And 
let's say you're a certain age and you feel like, oh, I'm too old to get better. Or let's even say you're 20 years old and you want to be an entrepreneur or you're 20 years old and you want to be a professional magician, but you've never picked up a magic trick before. Well, by interviewing 500 or more peak performers and then also reading thousands of books on the topic and myself having been a peak performer or close to it in various fields, I really want to understand how to, I'm going to call it skip the line, like how to not take the straight path to get better at something. So for instance, if someone wants to be better at tennis, maybe they go out and they play a lot of tennis and they work on their forehand, they work on their serve, but are there other things you can do? Not quite tricks, but are there smart things you can do to achieve better performance faster? Not so that you can be best in the world, but so that you could say, let's say, be in the top 1% fairly quickly. You could skip the line. And there's physical components to that. There's emotional components, believe it or not, because there's a, you have to deal with the psychology of failure, the psychology of consistency. When you skip the line in any field, you're going to have people who don't like you for skipping the line. So there's a psychology mm-hmm. to that. There's a creative aspect, obviously, because in order to achieve any kind of peak performance, you have to find your own unique voice in that area of life. That's, that's something that's uniquely yours because that's how you become known is from your voice, not because you're just as good as everyone else, but because you have something unique to say. And there's a spiritual component to that, which is I can't, if I want to be a professional basketball, if I want to be a great basketball player, I can't control my height, but I can control how I shoot, how I dribble and so on. That's oddly a, a spiritual component. And peak performance is, is intertwined with this daily practice. So I love hearing about it. I love hearing all the techniques and everybody's got different techniques. And and I try to learn at least one or two things from everybody, plus integrate it with what I learned from my own experience. Mm -hmm. And I think in in what you said is is so important that it doesn't matter how old you are, the sort of like duality of you can use a daily practice and it doesn't matter what small action you take as long as just get started. And then adding those and then learning from peak performance, you can actually aim for that 1%. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I met somebody the other day who, um, is over 50 years old and he wanted to be a break dancer and not professionally. He just wanted to learn this one move, which is a particularly difficult move, but it's kind of like where the direction you go. If you want to get good at break dancing, not that I know everything about break dancing, but, and what people don't realize if you're 50, a, it's difficult to do to start off on any kind of new, brand new physical activity. Your 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 bones are weaker. Your ability to train your muscles is weaker. You get tired faster. But if you just improve at something one percent a day, compounded, it's not three hundred sixty five percent a year. It's thirty eight hundred percent a year. So, and that's what this person did. He just tried to get one percent better at breakdancing every day. And within like six months to a year, he was able to do all of these moves that are. If you were to see him do it, it's very, very difficult moves. They're like, you could YouTube them. He's so good now. That's such an interesting theme to learn. I'm curious, like from the 500 plus interviews that you've done, are there common, other common themes that you've seen across all the people you've interviewed besides sort of like, let's say like this 1% thing? Well, t- certainly the 1% thing. I think also an ability to ready, fire, aim. So let's say, I mean... Richard Branson, who's been on my podcast, he's a great example of this. He 
One time he was, it's a classic story about him, he described it to me. One time he was taking a plane from, I think it was some Caribbean island to Puerto Rico. He was 27 years old. The plane got canceled. He needed to get there. So he found a guy who had a private jet and he said, I'm going to charter your jet. And he couldn't afford it. So the guy gave a price. Richard Branson figured out if he wanted to sell, sell out all the seats on the chartered jet, it would be about $100, or I think it was $29. Let's just say it was $100 a seat. So he put up a sign, Virgin Air, $100 a seat to, to Puerto Rico. And he sold out. And that gave him the idea of doing Virgin Airlines. So that's a great ready, fire, aim. He chartered the jet before he had the money, but he had the confidence that he would be able to get the money. Now, ready, aim, fire would be, oh, there's a charter jet. I'm going to first talk to all the passengers, make sure I could raise the money. Then I'll talk to the guy, the pilot, and then I'll put it all together. That's ready, aim, fire. But that's going to fail a lot more than ready, fire, aim. And so that was a very common thing among all of the peak performers, everybody, is that they weren't ready. And I really do think most people are ready, aim, fire people. But ready, fire, aim was a key characteristic of these people. The other thing is they really had a dedication or they have a dedication to learning and they're very disciplined about how they learn. They won't just kind of read haphazardly. They'll, they have a very, all of them have their own kind of methodologies for how they learn new things, how they study things, how they study people. I would say also another common thing is they're very, in general, not all of them, but in general, they're very kind people. And so you find yourself wanting to be around them. Because now, sometimes I actually would even wonder, is this, is this real or is this just like a superpower they have? Like, is this, are they really kind of this charismatic and, and, and part of that is, is kindness or is this kind of their skill and we don't really know how they are? I don't fully know the answer, but I will say that I, at the very least, experienced a lot of kindness and, and saw a lot of kindness in, in many of these people, which is counterintuitive to the narrative that's being spread right now. Like everyone thinks, oh, billionaires are evil or this guy, if he's a success, he must have stepped on a lot of people. And that's certainly true in some cases, just like in every area of life. But I found more people on average in these peak performer category really put, paid a lot of attention to being kind and, and a good person than, than otherwise. And those are just some, I could go on, but those are some of the, the common characteristics. Yeah. What are other ones? Well, I remember sitting down with Ken Langone. So Ken Langone, multi-billionaire, started Home Depot, but he's, he's made billions from lots of things, but Home Depot is the biggest thing. Home Depot, of course, has created hundreds of thousands of jobs, about tens of thousands of, of millionaires from its stock price among the employees and so on. But Ken Langone also, he's, I think he, a recent donation he gave makes all medical education in New York City, like MD degrees, free. So he, he completely wiped out tuitions for medical students in New York City. And he's donated to most of the hospitals in this city. So if you go to almost any hospital in New York City, Langone is usually in the name. So he's a very charitable guy. But in the very beginning of the podcast, and I don't even think he realized we were recording this, he was asking, we were, we were doing the podcast in a comedy club. Now, I happen to own the comedy club, which is why we were doing it there. He, he, suddenly, he like squinted at me and he's like, he, he got a little bit more intense and he started asking me like, what do you buy the alcohol for? What, how much do you pay for the alcohol? How much do you sell? How, what's the average seating price? What do you pay the waiters and waitresses? What do you pay the comedians? What's the rent? Like he, he was digging, within seconds, he was digging in on, you know, what's the liquor license cost? What's this? What's that? What's the health insurance? How many contractors do you have? 
I didn't know the answers. Like I'm like an invest. I was a, at the time I was mostly an investor, not really an, I'm not an operator of the club. Other people operate the club and I didn't really know the answers. And probably I should have asked those questions myself, but he like, boom, he was so intense. And I find a lot of these guys are very intense and they know exactly where to drill down to kind of get the most information as possible, as quickly as possible to understand a situation. And I think the only thing he came away with is this guy really does not know what he's doing when it comes to investing in comedy clubs, which probably means he's not a very smart investor, but I invested in the comedy club for more as a passion investment than a serious investment. No, but it was that intensity that then that was in the very beginning of the podcast. Then I noticed in his own stories about himself, even dating from like the 1960s, he brought that intensity into every high stake situation that he was ever in. That, that's just an amazing story. And, um, and that's another thing I've seen is people who are that skilled, like it's, it doesn't matter if something's this small or it's like a huge thing. They bring the same level of intensity, like even the smallest things. Yeah. And not only intensity, but the same level of curiosity. So they get insanely curious. And that, and I spoke to Brian Grazer, who's, he's done probably $20 billion worth of box office. He's a, he's a movie producer. He did uh, Splash, Apollo 11, no, Apollo 13, 8 Mile. He does the TV show Empire. He did the TV show Arrested Development. Like a lot of my favorite shows and movies. Anyway, $20 billion in, in box office. And the way he's produced movies is he's insanely curious. For Brian Grazer, it's very important every week to have what he calls at least one intense curiosity conversation. He finds someone who's an expert in their field, just like we do with our podcast. He finds someone and he drills them intensely so he can find out as much as he can. And he's a very curious guy. He's written books about curiosity, but I use it as an example because he's written books about it. But all of them, all 500, insanely curious. That's another common thing. Another common thing is they don't accept no as an answer. So for instance, I had on Tyra Banks, she had an idea of, hey, everybody loves models and everybody loves the TV show America's Got Talent. What if you combine the two and, and you make a show America's Next Top Model? So she had this idea one morning. She calls up her agent or producer or whatever. And the person was like, nah, nah, that's a horrible idea. Awful. She called up a bunch of places, TV channels, whatever. Horrible idea. Horrible. Well, she said, I don't. I don't believe that's horrible. She really had confidence. She knew when to have confidence. Some people don't know. She knew when she should have confidence. And she's like, I'm going to pursue this. And I think they're in their 31st season now. It's one of the one of the best shows of all time. If you measure by number of seasons, I don't know of any other TV show except The Simpsons in their past 30 seasons. On the thing that you mentioned about confidence, how do you know when you should have the confidence to keep pushing? Versus maybe, okay, it's not a great idea and maybe you should refocus. I think that's a really important question because, well, for, for I'll answer the, the question and then I'll tell you why I think it's important. For me, I have confidence when I'm excited about something. So let's say I'm pursuing an idea and, or let's say I'm in an investment and everybody I talk to about the investment is like, oh my gosh, how can I invest in that? That doesn't just mean, that doesn't mean necessarily they know what they're saying. Like I don't get confidence over other people's feedback, but it means that I'm excited enough 
able to persuade. I'm only able to persuade people on things I'm excited about. So I, I know that when I'm excited, I should keep pushing further, which doesn't mean quit my job, risk it all, and do this one thing. But it does mean that 1% a day. Do an experiment. Do Maybe call someone up, get a customer. Or maybe if I'm excited about writing a novel, write another page or, or outline another character or whatever. Just pursue a little bit each day. You're not always going to be super excited every day about everything. I think you'll know in your heart where your heart's compass is pointing. And whether something is a good idea or not actually becomes irrelevant. If your compass is pointing in a direction, that's the only direction you should go in. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. This is back to comedy. A few years ago, in my late 40s, I decided I want to try stand-up comedy once. And I did it, and I loved it. And so my heart was pointing me in that direction. Now, I'm never going to be a professional stand-up comedian. I don't want to be. But I realize I love this skill. Now, sometimes I go up and I hate it because I bomb or the audience hates me or whatever. But still, you know, I'll wake up the next day thinking of new things. Like my heart is still pointing me with its compass in that direction. So I keep trying to get better every day. And over a four or five year period, I've gotten a lot better. And the same thing happened to me almost 30 years ago when I started writing every day. Or the same thing happened to me when I was a kid and I was playing chess every day. Or the same thing happened to me when I started a a business once and I was excited enough every day to keep pursuing it and building it and finding customers and, and so on. Now, the reason why it's an important question is because a lot of people have what I call smoking crack bias. Like they smoke, their, it's a very big tendency to smoke your own crack that you think, oh, my, this is my business idea, so it must be good. And I think it's very important always to be aware that no, you can't avoid smoking crack bias. You will always think the activities you've invested time in have, have value. Otherwise, your brain is telling you, why would you invest time in it? You're not, your brain is saying you're not stupid, so you wouldn't invest time in this if you were because you're smart. So you always have to say, given that I have smoking crack bias, what am I not looking at? I have to check the box that I have to figure out, am I doing the right thing? Am I getting the appropriate feedback that I should be getting at this level of uh, time and mental and emotional and maybe financial investment? So it's very important on the one hand to follow your heart's compass and to understand where you're going, but it's also very important to realize, oh, I've only written two articles in my life. I'm probably, I love it, but I'm probably not yet a good writer. I probably need to improve, even though my brain is telling me I'm the best in the world. Or I have a product that I want to sell. I think it's great, but I really don't know until customers are buying it. So the fastest you could get to customers buying an idea or a product, the more you know, you, you probably have a good idea. So it's always important to follow your heart's compass and your heart will tell you where it's pointing or, or at least get in the exercise of listening to it. And then it's important to take a step back always and say, well, I got to see the areas where I'm smoking crack. Because certainly some, in some areas I'm smoking crack. Can you share an Sorry, example of how, how you did that? Let's say, I think stand-up is a fa- fascinating example because it's been also amazing to see you sort of like pursue that. What are sort of themes that have emerged about learning for you from stand-up? Right. So that, I keep saying that's a great question, but it is a great question. One thing I learned about skill acquisition a long time ago is that there is no, like a lot of the skills people think they need to learn 
are not actual skills. Like entrepreneurship is not a skill. It's an umbrella of many skills. It's sales, it's marketing, it's persuasion, it's product development, it's motivation, which is different than management, which is different than leadership. It's raising money. It's selling a company. It's being, if not detail-oriented, being able to delegate the details. So there are many, many skills in entrepreneur. You can't say, I'm a good entrepreneur. You have to get better at persuasion, you know, sales, marketing, leadership. You have to get to kind of identify all of these skills that you need to get better at within the umbrella of entrepreneurship. If you play, do you play chess, Such it? I don't. Do you know the rules? Yes. Okay, I have so played. I, I, when I say I, I don't play, I was comparing to sort of like the level you're playing at and I was like, not that at that level. Right, so, so chess is a great example where it's not just chess. You got to be good at the opening in chess, which is very different from the middle game in chess, which is very different from the end game and, and so on. So there's many skills to learn. And when I was getting better at chess, I would say, okay, today I'm going to focus on the end game and I would just study the end game. Today I'm going to focus on this particular opening and I would just study that opening. There's no one thing like, oh, today I'm going to study chess. I'd have to break it down. With stand-up comedy, I've tried to be a peak performer at many different areas. I just mentioned chess and entrepreneurship and writing, but there's been many other areas where I've started and either got to a certain level or stopped or whatever. Stand-up comedy is by far in a weird way, the hardest skill I've ever had to learn. And so it became interesting to me, not just from a point of view of stand-up comedy, which is, I'm a fan of anyway, but skill acquisition. Like how, do, how does one get good at this very complicated skill? And again, there was a lot of, there's no one skill called stand-up comedy. There's obviously sense of humor, but that is by far actually not the most important thing. There's stage presence, there's performance, there's uh, reading a crowd, there's uh, crowd work, there's psychology, is very psychologically difficult. There's likability, there's the crowd, how do you make the crowd like you? And then there's a, a kind of writing component that was different than my prior writing. I've been writing for 30 years, but the writing for stand-up is very different. And there's a writing component that was difficult. And I've been public speaking for, I'm a public speaker for 20 years. I thought that would, inst I thought my sense of humor, my writing, and my public speaking would automatically translate to stand up comedy. It didn't. So I had to kind of adjust my, how I speak to people on stage. And what was interesting is then now I pub when I public speak, stand up comedy actually translates back into public speaking. My public speaking is like 10x what it was. My writing is 10x what it was, give or take. And so it was just a fascinating thing for me in terms of skill acquisition. And it was a way to practice all of these ideas that I've been studying, whether through my own life, through my own writing, or through these interviews that I've been doing. It was a good kind of laboratory to study this that it wasn't so high stakes. Although, believe me, when you're on stage and there's an audience of 200 people and none of them are laughing, it is the most high stakes happening thing happening to you, particularly at that moment. It is, it is the, the worst and you have to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's why public speaking is like people's number one fear. Um, I think you mentioned something interesting, which was how your stand-up helped your public speaking. So as you sort of pursue these different skill sets, like are there other examples of where you've seen this sort of cumulative effect where like one thing helps the other and the other helps the first one or something? Yeah, so what's interesting is it's almost like math equations. So I would say stand-up comedy helped public speaking, but public speaking did not help stand-up as much as I thought. So you could argue... 
using a greater than sign, not that stand-up comedy is greater than public speaking, but let's just use the greater than sign for this purpose. Stand-up comedy was greater than public speaking. But like I became a chess master and then later on I wanted to become master strength at a game called Go, which is a very popular game in Asia. Uh, in fact, famously last year, uh, Google developed a software program for the first time that beat a the Go world champion. It was a much more difficult game for AI to beat than, than chess. But anyway, becoming a chess master was like equal to the skill, the meta skills I needed to learn how to be a Go level, uh, a master level player at Go. And that's roughly equal to the skills I needed to become a master level player at poker. Poker, there's some different skills because there's a little bit more psychological component, but those games kind of each translated into the other. Entrepreneurship makes me a better private company investor, not public company investor, but having been an entrepreneur many times and both a failure at one and a successful one, I've started many companies, some did well, some did not do well. That helped me be a better private company investor, which is now the primary way I make a living or make money. And But being an investor won't, won't make you a better entrepreneur. So being an entrepreneur is greater than, in this methodology, private company and angel investing, call it. Uh, and angel investing is not greater than running a private company. But I'm glad, you know, the entrepreneurship, which I don't really enjoy that much, helps me a lot with the investing, just the same way stand-up comedy helps me with public speaking. So I could think of more examples. Um, writing helps me with persuading and sales, but being a good persuasive person will, would not necessarily make me a better writer. I don't know that for sure because I started writing before I ever started selling anything, but I get the sense that being good at uh, the elements of persuasion don't translate back into writing as well as one would think. I feel like when I read a lot of copy out there, like copy that's intended for sales, it's good for sales, but it doesn't necessarily mean someone could write a really good short story or article or novel or book. That's a different category. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by like the number of different skill sets you mentioned. And I think, I think you're probably one of the few people who's uniquely, who can uniquely like answer this question, which is, I think people have this misconception that you can either be on the creative side or on the business side. Like creative people think the business stuff is just like a black box and the, the business people think that the creative stuff is a black box, right? I definitely had that before I started doing this. Just sort of like, what are your thoughts on that and this mix or spectrum of like the creative and the business side? I think that's not true at all. And again, it's because of what I was saying earlier. There's not one skill called creative. There's not one skill called business. So for instance, I am very poor at managing people. I really do not enjoy being, for instance, the CEO of a company. So the past couple of companies I've started, I would start the company, but I would have someone else be CEO who would handle all the day-to-day management of people and so on. So, so, but meanwhile, I'm also a creative, like I, I'm a writer, I've, I've worked on TV shows, I've do stand-up comedy. I've done a lot of there's creative things. If I had, what the greatest example is when I first started getting into business, I didn't know anything about business. I had no understanding. You know, another skill in business is how you value your company. I had no understanding of basic issues like that. And all I knew was, is at the time, my very first business was in the mid nineties, I made websites for fortune 500 companies. 
So AmericanExpress.com, I made their first website. HBO.com. Yeah, Reset.com was my first company. Mm-hmm. And great, great name. name. Names like that don't exist anymore. And you know, HBO, Time Warner, Con Edison. I did websites for every gangster rap record label. But what I was really, but so I was creative. I, I, and I thought the internet at the time, and it still is, it was, is a creative medium. So I figured, okay, I'm going to bring my creativity to the table here. And that's how I will build this business. But what I realized really quickly is you need to be able to convince people of your vision. The only way I can sell you something is I have a vision in my head that I feel passionately about, and I need to almost telepathically put it into your head as well. So we share the same vision. And the way we get there is you provide the money and I do the work. And, you know, or you provide the money and I sell you a product. And so because I was so passionate about the creativity involved in internet. And also I had a sense, I was a technologist. I, I had a, my original training was computer programming, computer develop, software development, and web, you know, and then I used that for website design because I had a technological background. I also had a sense that every company is going to need a website. By the way, nobody believed that back then. I had to convince American Express, you're going to need this website. A big chunk of your business is going to be on this brand new thing that nobody's ever heard of yet. This is 1994, 1995. And so having a technology gave me some skills in futurism. And I was passionate about the creativity of the internet. And I was able to use that to synthesize that into building some skill in face-to-face sales and persuasion. And that's a very much a business skill, but it was fed by my creativity. So they kind of overlapped. So there's no wall between business and creativity. Look at Elon Musk. Elon Musk never built a rocket ship. And he SpaceX is the leading private space company on the planet. So he certainly had to be creative to come up with the ideas for his business. So I, I think business is very much a creative endeavor. And by the way, art is very much a business endeavor. How are you going to get your book sold? if you don't know how to convince people that their agenda is the same as yours and that you're all going to make money selling this book. And then you get a sense, well, I need some, if I'm going to sell this book, I need some marketing skills. So I need to build a platform on YouTube or Twitter or, or TikTok or LinkedIn. And those are business skills. A lot of people think, oh, I need to just sit in my room and write the best possible book. Sure, you do need to do that, but you need business skills to make sure the book is widely read and sold. A great example is, Ryan Holiday, he just came out with a book, Stillness is the Key. It's like his seventh book. Great writer, great book, by the way. But then let's break it apart. I asked someone to send me a list of all the podcasts Ryan Holiday was on in the week his book came out. He was on like 20 different podcasts. Okay, so that means, and that means he called up 20 different people and he used connections and relationships he's built up over the past eight years since his first book came out, to get on all these podcasts. That's a business skill. And it's very much, he's an artist. He, he focuses on writing. He doesn't want to start a business. He focuses very much on his, on his writing skill. But when he needs to, he, he uses his business skills to sell his book. By the way, his book then that week was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Business skills sell books. I love that. Um, how do you balance the two? Like, is it very structured, like you have different days for each, or is it just, how do you balance the the two sides? Uh, For me, ever since the past 20 years, the morning is devoted to 
writing and creativity, and that's it. I don't return emails. I don't do anything unless it's moving my writing and creativity forward. I don't even do other creative things. Like I won't do a podcast in the morning. I won't think about what new jokes am I going to tell tonight? I won't think about that in the morning. I won't work on TV stuff if, if I'm involved in a TV project. I only write in the morning because that's that's really been like the flagship of my creativity for, for 30 years. And that's why even this podcast we scheduled right after the morning. It's, we scheduled at 1 p.m. my mm-hmm. time. And, and then after that, that's like the hard part of the day. Then after that, I, I view business as a little bit easier. It's returning phone calls. It's returning emails and so on. And so I'll do that mostly in the afternoon. So I, my initial impulse to your question was to say, oh, it's kind of combined, but it's not really that. Definitely, I do creative things earlier in the day. And then during that slow time when the brain is a little bit more sluggish from noon to, let's say, 5 p.m., depending on the day, I'll do more business-related activities. Now, podcasting is creative, but I could do that in the mornings too, but I really focus on writing in the, in the morning. So I do separate it out. That's, that's fascinating. And, and one thing actually I wanted to ask you about that, that you mentioned earlier was your software development experience. I don't think you've talked about it that much. I'm curious how that background plays a role in what you do now. Because I have a similar thing. I was a programmer before anything else. So I'm curious, like, what role does that play in just maybe how you think or how you approach subjects or, or something else? Sure. And I didn't want to be a programmer. My Both my parents were programmers and I was like a, blah, a, a rebel, but not really. But uh, I didn't want to do that. And then in, in when I was in college, I started a business that required me to program point of sale machines. I had to program a point of sale machine to accept a debit card that we were developing. And so I never programmed before, but I quickly learned how. And in my senior year of college, I dropped everything. I switched majors to computer science. I took six courses a semester to catch up and I majored in computer science. Then I went to graduate school in computer science. Then when I got a job having to do computer programming, I knew so little about real world computer programming because college is basically useless that I had, they had to send me to remedial programming classes. But then I got obsessed with software combined with the creativity of the internet. And that's when I was able to have the skill set to start my first company. But to this day, years and years later, again, 30 years later from my first time I was programming, I still directly use software or software development. Like it, hel- it helps me to A, understand or manage software development projects. Like nobody could BS me on software development. B, uh, I always keep track of the latest programming languages and even scientific research and AI, just so that I'm never behind the times. Like for instance, I mentioned how Google has this deep learning that they, uh, software they use to beat the world Go champion, the world chess champion and so on. I've studied all the research behind that. So I'm up to speed on what I think is the only real innovation in software in a really long time. And I even in the past year programmed some software to model the stock markets. I've been doing that for about 19 years, writing software to model the stock market. And I always just keep up to date with that just to see what's working in the stock market, what isn't working. Not that I use it anymore to invest, but I like to keep track of that. And then on a kind of um, meta skills, I think having a software background helps you to always understand what is the simplest, most rational 
solution to a situation. And you could apply that to every area of life. And, and there's other ways to, that's, that's called Occam's razor, that the simplest solution is probably the correct one. There's other ways to develop that skill. But for me, software, software development, somehow or other translated into how, to, how given a complicated situation, what's the simplest way to understand this situation? If I do this, then I'll understand this. I'm curious, like, so, so you did the software development and then you did reset where you had to go pitch investors and, and sell, and then you've sold since, and then you started doing stand-up. Is there sort of like that the software mindset help you in sales or stand-up or in other things um, in terms of how you uh, the I've never thought about that. I think, again, it's related. Yeah, I would say the answer is yes, because it's related to this idea that I think kind of a fundamental premise of software development is that if something is too complicated to do, then it's probably not the correct solution in software for what you want to do. Like if I have to program something and if my first instinct is to write 57 programs and all these APIs, link them all up, that's probably not the best solution. It's too complicated. And I think that's helped me understand in sales, for instance, what, what are you doing in a sale? One of the things you're doing when you're persuading something of something is you're understanding what the other person's problem is and you're coming up with extremely simple solution for them and explaining why it's simple. So they're like, yes, please give me this simple solution. Help me. And of course, you have to be sincere about it and you have to be passionate about it. Otherwise, I can't sell it. But that element, I even have a name for it. It's called conspiracy numbers. So if too many things have to conspire, for something to succeed, it's probably not good. So in order for a business to succeed, if I need to have a billion dollars invested and I need to buy 500 acres of land, that's starting to get too, the conspiracy number is going up very quickly. So it's too many things have to conspire for me to succeed. If I can just make a phone call and see if I could sell the product to a couple of people and then I know this business will work, that's a very low conspiracy number. And then I think that business has a chance to succeed and so on. And same thing with software. If too many things have to happen in a piece of software, it's probably not a good solution to that problem. So it's looking for that's almost like simplicity. Um, by, by the way, in stock investing, that's true too. Like if I'm, when I'm writing software to model the markets, if I have to put too many variables in there, like uh, what are interest rates? What day of the week is it? Who won the Super Bowl? Uh, what are the, what's the, PE ratio? What are the revenues? Are they going up? Too many factors means there's actually a statistical name for it, which I won't get into the weeds there, but just suffice to say, when you have too many factors in a some sort of analysis kind of situation, you're probably analyzing incorrectly. And, that, and that's borne out by actual mathematics. So the words multicollinearity, too many, too many things in the pot, they're gonna, the flavors are going to mix inappropriately. And I think like, as like people who are like creators, we definitely tend to do that when we're especially thinking on the business side. I think we're, we're sort of like in this like fascinating age where before, if you were a creator, there were all of these gatekeepers. Like, like if you wanted to make a movie, there were movie studios and now you can just go on YouTube. So I want to talk about one of your favorite topics, which is this idea of, and I have a book here, choosing yourself. So yes. like, if you're a creator, like, can you talk a bit more about like that, that idea of just choosing yourself? Because a lot of times we wait for someone else to pick, pick us. Right. Sure. So I'll use an example of writing. So a lot of people, I feel everybody's got a book inside of them, right? But not everyone is going to A, write a book. And of all the people who write a book, not everybody's going to publish a book. 
And so when you have an idea for a book, let's even skip that. Let's say you wrote a book. There's still a lot of things that conspire against you that you have to convince an agent. You have to convince an editor. You have to convince the marketing team of a publishing company. You have to convince the publisher. Then you have to convince the market to buy your book and bookstores to take your book. So I just listed six things. Too many things have to conspire for you to successfully publish a book. So my first six or seven books, maybe eight books, I published with mainstream publishers like HarperCollins and Penguin and so on. But then I decided, you know what? I don't like how many things have to conspire for me to succeed. I have to convince all these people. They might not understand my book the way I do. Then, by the way, once somebody agrees to publish your book, you might have to wait up to a year and a half before your book is published and you have no control over the cover, over marketing, over anything. So Choose Yourself, the book that came out in 2013, which has done very well. It's my best-selling book ever. I decided to, what I call, professionally self-publish it. So rather than go through a publisher, I chose myself. I said, I'm going to publish it. I hired a book designer for pretty cheap uh, to make the cover. I hired an editor to, to go over and correct you know, grammar and mistakes, which inevitably happens when you write lots of words. I hired another editor to go through it structurally with me, the way a book publishing company editor would do. And then you know a few other random things. And then I uploaded it to Amazon and I published my book, Kindle, paperback, audiobook. I did an audiobook. I hired a recording studio and professionally did an audiobook. It wasn't so expensive. It was like $100 an hour for a few hours. And so I made, I made Kindle, paperback, audiobook. Later, I did the hardcover version as well. And it looked like a professionally published book, but I didn't, I avoided the agent, the editorial assistant, the editor, the marketing department, the PR firm, the publisher, the, the bookstores, the going on the book tour. Instead of going on a book tour, I did the podcast tour, which hit millions of people just from my own living room. And so again, that's one example of how people could choose themselves, figure out who the gatekeepers are and how you get around the gatekeepers. So for instance, let's say you want to make a movie. Great. Well, you have to convince people to fund the movie. You have to convince movie studio to distribute the movie. You have to, they have to convince movie theaters to buy the movie. And it takes tens of billions of dollars to, to advertise. Well, why don't you shoot an amazing trailer for your movie or, or shoot a three-minute version of your movie and put it on YouTube? Now you've just, or you could, if you want, you could cheaply, and this is possible now with today's technology, you can cheaply shoot an hour and a half movie if you have willing actors and, and so on, and you could put it on YouTube. Or even better, you could upload it to Amazon as if it's a movie. No one's going to know it wasn't made by a movie studio. It's on there on Amazon right next to Star Wars or whatever. So that's another way of avoiding the gatekeepers and choosing yourself. In business, you know, you could have an idea and you could try to pitch your boss or another company or even a venture capitalist to do this idea with you. Or you could start doing the idea. It's that ready, fire, aim approach. You could start selling and see what happens. You could take experiments in the direction of your idea and you could choose yourself to start this business. When I started my very first business, I had $0 in the bank. I didn't raise a dime, but I was able to convince my first customer, hey, buy this website, or, you know, let me make this website for you and pay me half up front and half when I deliver. So now I had the money to 
build out the website. I actually didn't need any money to build out the website, but I had, I knew the business was profitable before I even delivered the first product. So that was a way I chose myself. So in every area of life, you could choose yourself for health. A good friend of mine was diabetic. Now I don't recommend any, I don't know anything about nutritional advice or whatever. I'm just telling the example of my friend. My friend's a very successful, well-known politician, high name recognition. He had diabetes 10 years ago, five years ago, some number of years ago. And he completely changed his diet. He did a lot of research, completely changed his diet, did not to take the advice of the doctors, which I'm not recommending, by the way, this was only for him. He did not you know, do the whole insulin thing and, and all this stuff. He completely changed his diet and eliminated sugars and, and processed foods and, and certain meats and so on. And within six months, his diabetes was nowhere to be found, diabetes too. And so he chose himself for his own health, which is very important, regardless of whether you go to a doctor or not. That's a really interesting story. Um, yeah, that story. We're not giving any nutrition advice, PSA. Yeah. Oh, okay. Actually, I could say his name because um, he was just on my podcast talking about this story. So it's no secret. But um, he's the Brooklyn Borough president. He's running for mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. So, which again, not a national name, but he will be once he's mayor. He's the front runner right now for, for mayor. That's amazing. Even in this example, you mentioned like all of these different examples, like business, you've done this in writing, stand up, chess. I'm curious, like, where does that drive to do this come from? And maybe your example or like what you've seen as teams in, in the interviews you've done. Yeah. By the way, it's not necessarily a good thing. Like sometimes I look at some people and I say, man, all they did since they were 21 years old was they did the same thing I could have done. They, they took their, let's say, software or technology skills. They moved to Silicon Valley. And for the next 30 years, they were in that community and of starting companies and they made billions of dollars. And like peers of mine have done this. People I grew up with or whatever. And, you know, we all started with zero and I didn't want to move to Silicon Valley, but I've peripherally always been involved there. I've started technology companies. I've sold to Silicon Valley companies. I used to write for TechCrunch and other Silicon Valley publications, but I just never wanted to, I never was focused on making money really as odd as that sounds, I always kind of wanted to do whatever, what my heart wanted me to do. So I was thrown out of computer science grad school because I was spending all my time writing novels that never got published. And I moved to New York City because I wanted to work at HBO because I thought maybe I would make a TV show. I was delusional. And I think the worst period of my life was when I was only working for the money. Like when I started a hedge fund, I hated it. And I, but I felt like, okay, I might as well make some money. By the way, I didn't make money doing that. I made money at, at everything else I've done, but not that. And, you know, I always wanted to follow my heart, but I think maybe I've also been a bit of a dilettante. Like I haven't been, some people say you should focus and I'm not a big believer in that, but sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I had focused, but I had no desire to do that. So I don't think I would have been very happy. I, I totally get that too. And I, I think like in the examples that you listed, I'm curious, is there, is there like an element of like almost like wanting to prove yourself or like prove other people wrong? That's kind of like a driver? Because I've hey, definitely I, found that for myself. I should have called my book, Prove Yourself instead of Choose Yourself. Yeah, of course. Like uh, I'm insecure. Like I don't, I don't want to say like everyone else. I don't know what anyone else thinks, but I'm a pretty insecure person. And whenever you, whenever you start to get good at something, there are people a lot better 
And particularly if you start skipping the line, they're going to look down on you. They don't want you to skip the line. And so you have to deal with a lot of backlash. And, and a lot of that becomes like, well, I'll show them. And of course, you have to keep that feeling in, under control. Or you can use it positively. Like, I'm going to learn from them instead of prove myself to them. And the best way I can prove myself to them is by learning what I can and, and being the best I could be. It's sort of like revenge works that way. And, and does that, like, does, like, you mentioned the insecurity, like, does that go away? So for example, like, you like, you've published all of these books, you've books, you've invested in sold these companies, you've uh, have a top podcast and you live in New York city. Do you still feel that? Yeah. All this, every day, every day. And it's probably, be, I don't know. It's probably because I was insecure as a little kid. I was like, had braces, acne, my hair was always tangled, glasses. I didn't like contact lenses. I, I had, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, I only had corduroy pants even in the summer. So I was just this weird kid. My head was bigger than the rest of my body and no girls liked me at all, but I really liked them. And so I was constantly being rejected and I was insecure and I played chess. So obviously I didn't have that many friends. And you know, I think I've kind of, you sort of like, it's hard to grow out of who you were when you were 13 years old. You sort of that with you for the rest of your life. That there's always a 13 year old inside that says, let me out. I want to be insecure. I want you to be insecure now. And so that hits me every day. Hey, I gotta, I gotta do something tonight that I've never done before. And I'm very insecure about that. What are people going to think about me? Is it going to be good? So, you know, what do you have to do tonight? well, it's a group I've never met this group before, but it's a group like kind of like a meetup of entrepreneurs who are interested in stand-up comedy. So I reached out to them. I saw them on Facebook and I reached out to them and said, oh, I'm interested. They, they didn't know that I've been performing for like five years, but I said, I'm into this as well. Can I perform? And they didn't know I had been doing it. So they said, can we see a video first? And so I sent a video and they're like, oh, can you open the show for us? And, but now I don't have any material for, entrepreneurs. I've got a, you know, the rest of today, I'm going to be coming up with entrepreneurs. They said, can you try to make as many jokes as possible on entrepreneurship? Joke writing doesn't work that way. You have material that you work on for a year and maybe five years, you work on one joke and you perfect it. And, and even though I have a lot of like insane experiences for entrepreneurship, this is where public speaking doesn't translate into comedy. I've told these stories in public speaking so many times and make people laugh, but they're not quite jokes. They don't have punchlines. They're just very insane stories. And I've got to either figure out how I'm going to make those things jokes, which I've been trying for five years unsuccessfully, or come up with totally new material in the next five hours. So what's an example of one of those stories? All right. One time I was raising money. Uh, by the way, I have- Or more. Uh, I have a hundred stories. More than one. So one time I was raising money for my hedge fund and my next door neighbor said, why don't you come in and meet my boss? He puts, he has a lot of, he has a big fund. Maybe he'll help you out. So we drive into the city and he introduces me to his boss. Boss was a super nice guy. He was like, he looked like my grandfather. I felt like calling him dad, like right away. And he gives me the tour of the facility and we're getting along so well. And he finally sits me down in his office and he says, so James, I like you a lot. Tell me what, why are you here? What do you want to do? And I said, well, I have this hedge fund. Maybe you can invest in it. He had like tens of billions of dollars in his hedge fund. He was very successful. And he said, if you wanted a job here, James, I would give you a job. No problem. But 
I don't know what you're going to do with the money. I, you know, you you seem like a nice, honest guy, but I can't keep track. If I gave you best money with you, I can't keep track of what you're doing with it. Maybe you're doing something dishonest or unethical. And he said, he said, he pointed at himself and he said, the last thing I need is to see on the front page of the Wall Street Journal name Bernard Madoff Securities. And so he rejected me. And then I was really, I was so depressed leaving his office. Like, how can I ever compete with this god of hedge fund management? His returns were great and consistent. And he had all these tens of billions. And other hedge fund managers were calling me when I left there saying, how can we invest in him? And I'm like, I don't know. Just, you can't. He's, he's, clo- he's not letting in new, new investors. And so everything happened. And 10 years later, I called his prison to see if he wanted to be interviewed for my podcast. And the warden, they they conveyed the message to him and the warden gets back on the phone and tells me, yeah, uh, Bernie Madoff said no to going on your podcast. And I'm like, what? He said no to me again? This guy just has my number. Like he just knows how to like drive me insane. Like, what is he doing? Is he so busy making license plates he can't come on my podcast? And the ward, I said that, and the warder was like, uh, he just, he said, no, I, I don't have anything else for you. Sorry. And that was it. And once again, frustrated by Bernie Madoff. Twice so now. See, so see, it's a funny story, but it's no punchlines. So, I mean, it's a little bit of a punchline. I, I held it to the end saying Bernard Madoff Securities. I used to say the name first before saying Wall Street Journal. And, uh, you know, I used elements of comedy in telling that story, but it's not quite stand-up comedy. And I can see how you're in this, you're testing, which kind of like goes back to the software where you like write code, get feedback, test again. What are, what are other stories like that? I know if I've heard you talk a little bit about like how you think you used to like go late night and do interviews back in your HBO days. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, that's not as, as, I guess there's funny elements of it. But so at HBO, I, wanted, I was just a lowly programmer. Not that there's anything low about it. My title was junior analyst programmer in the IT department. And nobody cared about the IT department at HBO. They only cared about making TV. We were even sitting in another building. But I convinced HBO to make a website. They didn't have one. And then I said to Jeff Bukas, who was at the time was the CEO of HBO, then he was the CEO of Time Warner for many years. He just sold it, just sold the company to AT&T. And I went to Jeff Bukas and I said, look, you guys make original TV shows like the Larry Sanders show. Uh, how about I do original web shows for you? This is a brand new medium. I'll do original web shows. And he said, whatever you want, man, I don't care. And so I, I started doing this web show called 3AM. It was probably the first web show ever. And it was, it was really like a podcast. I would go out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night and I'd interview you. If you're out on a Saturday night, I get it. You're having a party, you're staying up late, whatever. If you're out on a such it. If you if you were out on a Tuesday night at three in the morning, something bad is going down in your life. <laughs> like it's not a good thing. And so, I, but I would interview all these people. I did this for like three or four years, interviewing people, like twenty people a week that were out at three in the morning. And I would take the best four interviews and I would design around them and get the transcript. And I put up four interviews a week. I did this from ninety six through the middle of nineteen ninety eight, and it was a great project. I did. I did. That I really I interviewed probably let's see twenty people a week for about two hundred weeks. So I probably interviewed close to eight thousand people during that time, and which really helped me with interviewing. And some things that happened were just insane. Like one time, 
it was three in the morning and I was at a diner all the way on the West side and New York wasn't so safe back then as it is now. But anyway, I was in a diner, so it was safe. And I saw two tables celebrating. It was like they had, were having one party together. So I said, what are you celebrating? And this guy points to this girl that's sitting next to him basically. And he says, oh, we just got engaged. We're celebrating that. And I don't know, something made me ask, like, I don't believe you guys are engaged. Why don't you prove it by kissing each other? And so we videotaped and photographed them kissing each other. And they started like really making out. And everybody was like gasping at both tables. And the guys with this guy was like, dude, stop. And so finally they stopped. It turned out he was engaged to another. That was the first time they had ever met. I pointed them out to each other. That was the first time they even looked at each other was, was when I said, kiss each other. And he had, was engaged to a girl in England and was about to leave for England to go back to her and get married. And so they ended up, I found out a year later, oddly in Aspen, I was at the HBO Comedy Festival and I ran into somebody who was like, I was at sitting in that diner. I was at the guy's table. You changed their lives. They, he didn't go back to England. He moved in with the girl <laughs> and they started going out. And as far as I know, they, they were going out for like at least a year as far as I know. That's amazing. So, so I'm curious about, so you've done a lot of podcasts, right? What have you not been asked about that you wanted to talk about? You've asked a lot of good questions. You're, you're going to have a fun time doing your podcast. You're, you're doing really well. I don't really know. I guess I don't know what I don't know. That's true. That, that's one of the reasons I'm doing this is, is to learn that skill set. What have you learned about interviewing from doing all of these podcasts? Well, I think interviewing is an ongoing thing that you learn. I think it's an art form, much like, like writing and like even, I'll say, stand-up or movie production or painting or drawing. Interviewing is an, an art form also, and there are good interviewers. There's a spectrum from really bad to excellent. I wouldn't consider myself at the top, despite that I have all this experience. But I think the main thing I've learned is A, prepare really well so that the person is shocked by how much you know about them. By the way, that's just for me. Larry King is famous for being a great interviewer, but not preparing at all. So then you, th there's a skill to that too, which is, and Joe Rogan's a little like that as well, where you kind of represent the everyman if you don't know anything, because then you're uncovering it at the same time as your listeners. So, but I like to prepare because I like to dig right to things that I think my listeners will be interested in. But I think also there's a skill to um, being conversational so that it feels free flowing and not as much like an interview. But that's a little bit up to your get. That's a very hard thing because it's a little bit up to your guest as well. Some some guests, they just, they don't want to have a conversation. They just want to be interviewed and they're not very good interviewees. Now, I do take extreme ownership and I take responsibility. Well, how can I spice this up? But that's part of it as well. And sometimes a good podcast is not about the interview, but it's just about the entertainment value. Like you want the whole podcast to be entertaining, but you only really need a little bit of the podcast to be educational. I think that's an actually fascinating insight that I didn't think about as more of the entertainment factor than the educational factor. Well, think about it when you read a nonfiction book. Like, what's, like, like, let's say I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay, Outliers. I'm going to read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm only going to remember like one or, I'll read the whole book, but I'm only going to remember in the long term one or 2% of the book. But the whole book needs to be entertaining. So I keep turning the pages. I'm not going to remember every single 
anecdote and story. He's got 10,000 stories in his book. I'm not going to remember everything. Or like Robert Greene's, you know, 48 Laws of Power. That guy's got 20,000 history stories in there. I'm going to remember like maybe three that had an impact on me. If you really think about it, you only remember tops two or 3% of what you read in a, in a book. So the entertainment to education factor is about 50 to one. That makes so much sense when you explain it like that. And I think it also shows me the importance of just eliciting stories, which you have so many, because then that's what people remember. Yeah. People remember the stories like, oh my God, this was insane. Like if you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, like I'm not going to list, let's say he just had a podcast with Tulsi Gabbard. I'm not going to really learn about all of Tulsi Gabbard's policies in a Joe Rogan podcast, but I'm going to get insane stories, both from Joe and because he's a good, the best podcast. So I'm going to get insane stories out of Tulsi as well. So much so that I call her by her first name. I feel like I know her because I was listening for three hours. So, you know, it's, uh, he's a good podcaster to study. Who, what else have you, or who else do you study in podcasting? And like, what have you learned from, from them? Okay. I'll tell you our mutual friend, Andrew Warner. I think what he's very good at is he's not aggressive on purpose, but he's not afraid to be aggressive. He won't, he won't be mean in an interview, but he's not afraid to be very aggressive in an interview to ask questions that are a tiny bit sensitive, but that many people would maybe be afraid to ask. I also feel, so I've learned that, right? And so I also feel I'm not afraid to ask those questions, but I probably won't be as aggressive. He'll aggressively ask it. Like he's almost challenging the interviewee on behalf of his listeners. Like we want to know why you did this. And, you know, I might ask it in a different way, but I learned from him that, you, you know, it's the only time you're going to get a chance to interview this person. You might as well go all the way and ask all the serious things that you're curious about. And so he is a good aggressive style that, that I admire. And then there are podcasts where they're ostensibly storytelling podcasts, like maybe like a history podcast, but it's just the host and the co-host spend the hour kind of joking around. They'll spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes on the history because, yeah, again, it's the entertainment value over educational value that's important. And, you know, that, that's where I kind of start forming my views on that is by listening to podcasts like that. And I can even see when, when, when I look at your podcast, you sort of like weave together these, these different styles and, and made it your own. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm always in a process of switching format. Like, I think I'm mostly an interview format, but I'm, I'm moving more towards maybe storytelling or topic focused or panel rather than one person and making it a little bit more fun while still having an educational component. So I want the listeners' lives to be better after every single podcast, but I have to remind myself they only need one or two things to be better and the rest needs to be entertaining if I'm going to ask them for an hour of their attention. I think we've certainly done that in this one, especially with all the tips that you gave about starting in the start at the start. Yeah, no, this is great. Before we jump off, one last question, which is if, if you were to, let's say, like, not have all the, the credibility and platform that you built up and you were starting to like create something from scratch, what would you do? Well, no matter what, you have to be good at something, right? You have to get good at something outside of social media to build a social media platform. So you can't just sort of like go on social media and suddenly get thousands of followers without anything to offer the world. So, you know, like if you're a professional race car driver and you've never been on social media, you'll pick an idea like, oh, okay, I'm going to show people the most amazing 
race car accidents or turns or I don't know anything about race car driving. So I'm making this up. I'm going to show. And then what I, one or two things I've learned from each one of these situations. And you know, then you might decide, well, Twitter is good, but you know, it's not my audience. You might decide TikTok. Okay. I'm going to put a 60 second video of a car passing another car on a turn and I'm going to have all sorts of music behind it. You know how TikTok provides. And I'm going to say, I'm going to put up, you know, little posters. This is what I learned. And I'm a professional race car driver for 30 years or whatever. So you've got to deliver value and you've got to be entertaining and you've got to find the right platform to choose. So when I started going on LinkedIn and Twitter, I knew a lot about business and entrepreneurship, but I also had kind of this very hardcore side of myself where I had failed a lot and wrote about, and I used to write a lot about coming back from that failure. And so that's what I delivered my audience on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and and Quora. And that's how I built a large audience on all those platforms. So, and, and, you know, and every follower was hard earned. Like I had no extra, you know, people who started off on Twitter early got, you know, millions of followers right away. I had to earn every single follower and I'm, or, or reader. And so I'm, I'm proud of what I've done on it. I don't consider myself an influencer or anything. I, I consider that I was able to deliver value. Um, certainly influenced a lot of people, including me. Um, oh, thanks. And, and I love what you said about just building sort of like following one at a time. So I think a lot of people just go for this mask, but they don't realize it's day by day. And, and speaking of that, um, if people want to find you after or thank you, where can they find you? I don't know. I don't know what the best place is. Do you oh, prefer you know, Twitter or Instagram or? No, I've been, pl- I've been experimenting and having a lot of fun with TikTok. So check me out on TikTok where I have no followers. I've just started like a few days ago and help me out. Like tell me what I could be doing better. James Altucher, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R on TikTok and listen to Sachet's podcast. You don't even need to listen to my podcast anymore. You, you've got everything for me. Just listen to Sachet's podcast. And and we'll link all of those in the show notes. James, this has been a pleasure. Thank you Thank so you much. This. Thank you. I appreciate it. Me too. Bye. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.